And as we think about what it means to be built up in Christ, I think is one of the key terms that we're going to use all summer long is discipleship. But it's really important if we're going to talk about a word, we should make sure that we understand what we're saying when we use that word, that we're not just using a, a, a church word or a Christian word that, that has no real um, semblance of meaning or, or, or value to us. And so this morning, we want to begin to flesh that out in, in today and in the coming weeks. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives us some of the marks of a disciple, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, he says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while another is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but... I don't think that's going to fly. I don't know if Jesus was up to speed as to what things would be like in 21st century North America, but this doesn't, this doesn't jive with our culture. I, I wrote down what I think, if Jesus really had been in touch with where we're at in the 21st century, I wrote down what I think he should have said. I think this sounds a little more palatable. Whoever comes to me and doesn't, at least on Sundays, think I'm slightly more important than their favorite sports team cannot be my disciple. Whoever has idols that aren't socially acceptable cannot be my disciple. Whoever comes to me and doesn't like me at least as much as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Post Malone, Sunday Afternoon Football, Ed Sheeran, November 15th, their travel sports, celebrity gossip, their new car, Taylor Swift, their retirement account, or their cell phone cannot be my disciple. Unless, of course, that's an inconvenience to you. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like, if that's okay with you, that is. That's a little more palatable. We can like Jesus on Sundays, but the rest of the week is ours. We can like Jesus as long as he doesn't call us to give up stuff that we really, really want in our life. And as I read his words from several places in the Gospels, and particularly we're just going to look at this section here in Luke 14, I realize how much it cuts against the grain of our culture. Because we want what we want. We want to think about 
our hobbies. We want to think about how we can use our time, our money. You fill in the blank for me. And then if, if I've got a little extra time, if I'm not too busy Sunday morning or once or twice a week for a couple of minutes to crack the scriptures, then we squeeze Jesus in. But when Jesus begins to speak about following him, he, he doesn't talk in accommodating terms. He calls people to follow him. The word that is used over and over and over is he bumps up against potential disciples is to follow. To follow or accompany someone means that they are leading, they are determining the direction, they are determining the, the movement, and you step in line behind them. I like the term disciple because I think it shakes us out of our, our overused term, Christian. Now, the word Christian is not in and of itself a, a bad term. Uh, it's used several times in the Bible. It's actually only used, I believe, three times in the New Testament. And it came to mean someone who followed Christ. But it, it, it has become a, a term that is, is, the edges have been worn off a little bit. Lots of people call themselves Christian. For goodness sakes, Larry Flint claims to be a born-again Christian. The term can be used as synonymous with being an American. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. It sometimes is used to refer to those who were born in a home where the family went to church. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I grew up going to church. It's sometimes used to refer to someone who has prayed a prayer to receive Jesus or asked him into their heart, so to speak, whatever that means. And the label Christian is attached, but there's not ongoing meaning. The fact is, is that the word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. It became a term for someone who was a learner of Jesus who followed Jesus. I like this definition here. I kind of synthesized several that I came up with. A disciple is a man or a woman who is a new creation in Christ, who no longer lives for self, but who has believed on Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who lives to learn, follow, and imitate Christ in all areas of life, and then seeks to make more disciples. We're going to revisit this term several times over the next few weeks. I didn't leave any blanks or put any, any blanks in the, in the PowerPoint, but I wrote down just a couple of things real briefly that a disciple is not. Before we think about what a disciple is and examine Jesus' words, I want us to just, just, I want to read five things to you that a disciple is not. First of all, a disciple is not someone who is just a zealous Christian, a, a pastor, a missionary, someone who went to Bible college, somebody who's just just on fire, talking nonstop about their faith, and who's, who's considered a little bit radical. And we think, all right, well, good for you. They, you. You have your place, and you're okay as long as, you know, we don't put the spotlight on you too much. Uh, we, need a, we need a few zealots around uh, to keep us motivated and, and have someone to whisper about. That, 
A disciple is not simply a zealous Christian. Number two, a, zealous, or a disciple is not someone who's perfect. As we talk about discipleship and following Christ wholeheartedly, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength over the next few weeks, do not hear me to say that a disciple is perfect. A follower of Jesus still has a sinful nature, and we're still going to blow it. But they don't love their sin anymore. Their sinful lifestyle is not what characterizes them. Number three, a disciple is not some sort of a next-level Christian. This is how I was taught to understand a disciple. Like if you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, or at least as your Savior, you were a Christian. But if you wanted to make him Lord, if you wanted to take the next step, and be like a super Christian, you became a disciple. You made Jesus Lord. But if that was a little too much, you could step back and just take the Savior part and be okay with that and still hope to spend eternity with God. You may not get like a big hug from Jesus on that last day. It may just be a pat on the back or a, yeah, you made it. But at least you were in. A disciple is not someone who has somehow gone to the next level. Uh, Number four, a disciple is not someone who has simply prayed a prayer. Of course, praying to trust Christ as your Savior is 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 a fundamental part of being a disciple. But there are too many that I have met over the years who, whose lives are complete train wrecks. They have no desire to follow Christ. And yet they, they're locked in on the fact that one time when I was at, at summer camp or when I was in, in a vacation Bible school, I prayed to receive Christ. And that, I'm sure that that was an amazing, fantastic experience. But if there's never been any fruit from that, if there's never been any outward change, I wonder if you became a follower of Christ. I, I certainly realize that that many do become followers of Christ through camp experiences, through vacation Bible school, through those opportunities. But if all you did was pray a prayer and then lived like there was no God the rest of your life, I wonder if that, that prayer was, did anything in your heart if you became a follower. And then finally, a disciple is not a Christian who lives however he wants because he somehow believes that he is locked in and good to go. When we read the words of Jesus here in Luke 14, they shake us to the core if we're willing to listen. And so I want to look at a couple of things from this text. First of all, the call of a disciple. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me. See, the Bible says that over and over again, we're told that that to be a follower of Christ, God has to initiate that work. Um, I'll throw a couple, of, a couple of texts up here. Remember when Jesus called his other, other disciples in Mark chapter 1, he says, as he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of, brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. He went and found them. He's the one that called them. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Isn't that amazing? They just dropped what they were doing, and they followed. We could talk more and more about this. But Jesus went on and called the sons of Zebedee. 
Come follow me. And they did the same thing. They dropped what they were doing and they followed. You remember last week we read the story of Jesus going to Levi in Luke chapter 5, the tax collector. And it says he saw him sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I wonder if Jesus walked into your home this week or walked into your place of business and said, follow me, what our response would be. Would it be, I already do. I follow you with all that is in me. But I wonder if he went on to explain what it means to follow him, if some of us would shrink back. But wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm cool with going to church, but you want me to do something like renounce all that I have? That's a little extreme, Jesus. These men that Jesus went to, he said, follow me, and they followed him. Jesus always initiates the call. John 6:44 tells us that no one can come to the Father, um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6:65 6, says, uh, and he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by his Father, by my Father. When Jesus calls and does a miraculous work on our heart, the Bible calls regeneration or the new birth, his people respond and come to him. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. When Jesus calls a disciple, when he begins a mighty work on their heart, they will come. I have a dog that is uh, slightly passive-aggressive. And um, there'll be times when I call her and she pretends like she doesn't hear me. She looks the other way. If she could whistle, she'd probably be like, sassy, come, come here. She pretends like her hearing's bad. And, and my wife, in fact, is convinced that it is. I'm not. Just like with my kids. <laughs> But the Bible says that God's call is not like that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you follow Christ? Would anyone be able to look at your life and say, she follows Christ? He follows Christ? I'm not just saying, I'm not just talking about them knowing that you come to church. But do you follow Christ? Another characteristic I, I bumped up against in Luke chapter 14 was this idea of repentance, the repentance of a disciple. You see, he said in verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has. That includes our sin. Jesus said when he was spending time with Levi there in that passage we read in, in Luke chapter 5, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance is a word that is uncomfortable. It's not something we necessarily normally incorporate in our, in our normal everyday talk. It's a, it's a strong word that, that encompasses not just a change of mind, but a change of behavior. Being so struck with, in this context, our sin, 
that we want to turn immediately from it. We all know instinctively the difference between being sorry and being repentant, don't we? We know what it's like to feel a little bit bad, maybe because we got caught or maybe because of the consequences, but to be broken over something we've done wrong, sin, where we repent, we confess that, we ask for forgiveness, and we turn from that, that's a different story. I know I've shared with you before that when I was a kid, I had high aspirations of being a professional wrestler. What it was that drew me towards running around with other sweaty guys in tights, I'll never know, but I I enjoyed Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and watching these guys. I thought, I want to be like that someday. So I had three younger brothers. I had perfect, perfect test dummies. And so I would, I don't know even know how I did it, but I would convince and cajole and coerce them to come downstairs and let me practice a new move on them, the figure four or some other submission move. And inevitably, I would hurt them, uh, drop them on the cement, and they would uh, begin, begin crying. And in that moment, I typically felt bad. I felt bad for a couple reasons. Number one, I knew that the wrestling exercise and practice was over with. They were going to they were going to quit on me. Oh blood, I don't know. Number two, I knew I was probably going to get a spanking <laughs> for hurting my brothers yet again. But was I repentant? Like, was I deep down broken over the fact that I had broken one of my siblings, that I had physically hurt them, probably deceived them a little bit into coming down to wrestle with them with empty promises or I'm not going to hurt you this time sort of thing? Was I deep down broken or was I just simply sorry about the impending consequences? Probably the latter. When a Christian is broken over their sin, there is genuine sorrow that we have offended a holy God, that we realize that we have pursued that which which our Savior gave His blood to die for. We have loved that which is appallingly ugly, And we are, we are overcome with sorrow. We come before our gracious, forgiving Father and joyfully receive His forgiveness that He promises and long to run as far away from that sin as we possibly can. Jesus said that a disciple will be someone who is repentant. Have, have you been broken over your sin? Not sorry about being caught. Not a little bit bad because, you know, you probably shouldn't have done it. But, but broken. Gotten just a glimpse of your sin through the eyes of an infinitely holy God. And come to Him in repentance. Repentance is not... Asking forgiveness with one eye looking back, thinking about when you can get away with it again. 
Repentance is an about face, turning from that sin and running back towards the Savior. That's a mark of a disciple. Number three, I saw the allegiance of a disciple. The allegiance of a disciple. Did you hear how strong Jesus' words were? Back in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus says, Everything in your life, everything must come a far distant second to me. Even the good things of life. And what does he pick? He picks family relationships. Now, for most of us, family is a very important thing. Imagine in the first century, it even being in, in, in first century Jewish culture, it, it was almost everything. You often followed in your parents' footsteps with the, the trade that they practiced. You typically lived nearby. You often took care of elderly parents. Family dynamics were far and away more significant than even the uh, most of our, our, our greatest and loving family examples in our midst, in our culture today. And Jesus said, I want you to know that I must be treasured over everything. Even what you would consider most important. Now, I think we know that Jesus is not literally saying that you must hate your family members. Because there's a whole bunch of other scriptures that would contradict that. Like like one of the Ten Commandments, for example. Honor your father and mother. Jesus has told us that, that in, in the Sermon on the Mount that hatred is the same as, as murder. In 1 John, we're told in several places that if you don't love, you're not a Christian. So he's not actually saying that we need to hate them. But let's not take our eyes off the ball here. Let's not soften it like, well, he didn't literally mean that, so we're good here. No, 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 no. We're we're probably not good because there's probably things in our lives that that we don't that we don't hate enough. That 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 like we we bring it right up and, and maybe even a little bit further ahead of Jesus. He's saying that that your love for me, should far and away supersede your love for anything else, that it almost seems like you hate those things. Think about where your treasures are. Maybe it is, maybe it is family. For many of us as North Americans, it's, it's money. It's our hobbies, our stuff that we, we pour our money into, our time. There are a lot of treasures that, that we hold closely to. And, and what he's telling us here in this passage is that nothing, nothing should come close to the love that we have for Jesus. 
Do you remember the story that Jesus told about a guy who was walking along through a field and he discovered that there was a treasure there? I, I like to imagine treasures. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for buried treasure stories. I always have been as a kid. Whenever I see a, a news story about, about some expedition uncovering some long-lost sunken ship, I, I always have to read it and find out what they found. I, I love it. And I try to imagine what this guy in this field found. He stumbled over a box and doesn't have a shovel with him, so he starts digging with his hands and discovers the box is a lot bigger than he expected. And so he goes a little bit this way and a little bit over here, and, and, and he manages to, to get it up out of the ground a little bit. And he realizes as he, as he opens this up that there's millions and millions of dollars in gold coins here. The text doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't tell us what the treasure is. But I'm imagining rubies and diamonds and and gems that had yet to be named, and and this guy is just absolutely going nuts. He realizes what he's found, the most precious, most valuable treasure that's ever been discovered in the history of the world, and then he realizes, "Ah, this is somebody else's property. Somebody else owns this field. So he begins to think, well, what can I do? How 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 can I keep this treasure? So he probably closes the lid and covers it back up and puts some rocks and tries to make it all look natural again. And, and then he goes to the landowner, Jesus says, and he says, what would it take to buy that field? And the, the man names a price and the, the individual realizes, I'd have to sell everything I own to be able to purchase this field. I have to sell everything to be able to raise the money to buy this land. But duh, of course I'm going to do it. And so he does. He gathers it all together. He sells it, takes the money, purchases the land, and he has something that is far, far, far and away more valuable than any of the previous possessions he had. What Jesus wants us to know is that there is nothing that we can give up that will be more valuable than Jesus. When we see Jesus, there's not one of us who's going to say, you lied to me. You tricked me. You said if I forsook everything, if I took up my cross and followed you, it would be worth it. And it wasn't. There's not, that, that will be a scenario that will not take place. Because Jesus is that, that treasure in that field. There is nothing that we can give up that is more valuable than he. And he says if, if our hearts are not open to fully following him, forsaking all. We can't be his disciple. These are not easy words, my brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't, so, I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the, tr- the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to pull it. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires 
which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think wicked. The whole outfit. Discipleship requires everything. There are no exceptions. And so then he gives us a couple of examples to show us the consideration of a disciple. You see, we don't take discipleship for a test drive. Jesus tells a mini parable here, too many parables. First about someone who decides to build a tower, and then secondly about a king who goes into war. He says, you don't, you don't decide to build a tower without planning it out. Some of you have built your homes or, or built a, a shed or storage unit on your property, and you realize that there's a lot of work that goes into planning and preparing it, clearing the land, getting the blueprints together, deciding exactly how big and the dimensions and Will this work here? And will, will that, if I want to incorporate this design element? There's a lot of planning that takes place. You don't just go to the lumber store one morning and say, I'm going to build a shed without getting any measurements and, and, and going and just buying a bunch of materials and, and begin to just start hacking it together. You might, have, you might have done that when you were a kid building a tree fort, but not, not a serious structure. And Jesus said, following me is the same way. Don't just jump in. Take some time to count the cost before you go in. He said it's the same, same way with a king going into battle. He's got to step back and say, okay, do I have enough troops to go to war with this army over here? I've got 10,000. He's got 20,000. Can my 10,000 beat his 20,000? He says, if not, I've got to decide if I'm going to come to peace agreement or if I decide that I need to go to war and try to take him on. i got to stop and think about it. I've got to plan it out. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take a step back a minute. Decide if I'm worth it to you. Or if you want your idols, you want your earthly treasures more than me. Following the success of the 1997 Mars Pathfinder landing, uh, the National Air, uh, that NASA, whatever that means, uh, planned a series of uh, scientific missions to the planet Mars. In, in ten, they intended to launch at least one new mission every two years. Their motto, motto was faster, better, cheaper. Well, things did not go quite the way that NASA had planned. In December of 1999, the Mars Polar Lander failed to slow on its descent and slammed into the surface of the red planet, smashing it to thousands of pieces. Later, it was determined that a design flaw in the $165 million spacecraft had caused the braking system to shut off too soon. According to the engineers, that was a flaw that could have been detected and prevented if only they had run the right simulation on their computers. Why then did they fail to run that simulation? Because NASA was trying to cut costs and decided not to purchase the necessary software. They may have done it cheaper, but they did not do it better. A $165 million lander destroyed because they didn't take time to count the cost. I am not a huge fan I'll do it, but I'm not a huge fan of going out into the ocean because I know there, is, there are things in there that can eat me. 
Now, my, my brother-in-law is visiting from San Diego. You know, my wife is, grew up there, and uh, they both surfed and spent lots of time out there. And they were talking just the other day about sitting on their surfboard and things bumping into their leg, for goodness sakes, that they can't see underwater or stepping on things that start wiggling. <laughs> things that, that could seriously hurt or kill you. I love Lake Michigan. (laughs) And so when I stand at the ocean and think about wading in there, let's go swim, my wife says. I'm counting the cost. (laughs) Unless she has just taken out a gigantic life insurance policy on me that I don't know. I don't know why she's so excited because there's there's death that awaits. But as you stand there at the threshold of the ocean and you've counted the cost and you realize that despite the risks, despite the trials that might await, you're going to go in anyways. Jesus said, you don't just go in up to your knees. You're not just getting your toes wet. If you've counted the cost and you decide to go in, my brothers and sisters, dive in. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me and is not willing to forsake everything, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is if if you don't want to go all in, then go home. Clearly, Jesus did not read how to win friends and influence people. Certainly, he's not privy to our modern evangelistic abilities to to coerce and manipulate crowds and play the right song and get people to come forward and, and pray. He says, listen, if you don't want to give it all up, you can't be my disciple. This morning... You might be thinking, these words are too extreme. You might be thinking, easy preacher, man, I'm just here for the donuts and coffee. (laughs) But as I hear the words of Jesus, I can't help but being cut to the core. I can't help but being convicted that so many of us in North America treasure so many of our, our, our things more than we treasure Jesus. Here this morning, the call to follow him, the call to discipleship is a call to forsake everything. But just as that man who bumped his toe against a treasure in the field, you will discover, you will discover that forsaking everything to follow him is infinitely worth it. The treasure of Christ is far grander than any of our hobbies, our smartphones, any other idol that captivates our attention. Are you willing this morning to be a disciple? 
Are you willing to forsake all to follow him? I know for many of you this morning, that's already been your course of life. Sure, we need reminders. We need encouragement along the way. We need brothers and sisters to say, hey, I think you've lost focus here. But there are those of us here this morning that are maybe in a couple other categories. One category is you've, you've been, a, to borrow Kyle Eidemann's title, you've been a fan but not a follower. You've been someone who's been content to call yourself a Christian, but this idea of discipleship is a radical idea to you. I'm okay coming to church a couple times a month. I'm okay with reading my Bible or praying before a meal, but following him? I don't know about that. And then maybe there are those here this morning that you've never heard anything like this before. You may have heard the name of Jesus. You may have read your Bible before, but this thought of following Christ of being a disciple is completely foreign. If that's you and and the Spirit is working on your heart today, I'd I'd love to talk to you. Our our worship team's gonna come up in just a moment as I pray, and I'd love to be able to have a chance to talk to you more about this, to pray and, and think through what it means to follow Christ. The marks of a disciple Jesus has called you and I to follow. Are we willing to leave everything behind, to take up our cross, and to follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words from our Savior are incredibly powerful. They're incredibly convicting. They're incredibly stirring. Lord, let us not simply hear them and walk away. May we be those who hear the word and obey. Lord, if there's idols in our lives, if there's there's treasures in our lives that we have deemed more valuable than Jesus, Lord, convict us of that. And may we pursue our Savior above all else. May there be no question from anybody in our lives where our allegiance lies. Lord, that we would follow Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.